Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy 4. Today we step into the final chapter in 2 Timothy. Paul, writing to his beloved friend, his disciple, his fellow minister, Timotheus. This letter is Paul's final epistle prior to his death and reflects a measure of urgency and finality in this message to his friend. Toward the end of chapter 3, Paul's focus had turned somewhat personal, directing his message very deliberately, not so much toward what Timothy should teach, but toward Timothy himself, his gifts and his calling. Exhorting Timothy in the face of evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse to continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of. Reminding him of the confidence which he could have because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is therefore profitable. And remember that this is a letter that the chapter and verse divisions that we find in our Bible are not inspired by God. They were put there as a wonderful organization and addressing tool, but in certain instances, recall, they can distract. There are certain, particularly chapter breaks, uh, that um, can cause us to stop when we really ought to keep reading. Uh, this is not one of those. But this is one of the chapter breaks where uh, we might be tempted to um, put a break in our minds whereby we read chapter 4 without remembering the context, at least, of chapter 3. And this can always happen. But do recall that these are epistles, letters. Uh, when you read a letter from someone, you might have to stop reading it for one reason or another. Maybe uh, you have to go do something else, or the phone rings, or a child screams, or whatever it might be. But you don't read a letter divorced from the context of the letter itself. You don't read paragraph four without first considering what was in paragraphs one, two, and three. If I just read paragraph four and completely ignore paragraphs one, two, and three, I might have a fairly good chance of misunderstanding what a person's trying to tell me. So Paul is very much still focused here then on exhorting Timothy. And don't lose that context. Don't, don't step outside of the context of what we have seen of this call, the warning in chapter 3 that in the last days perilous time shall come. Then the call um, that though evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, that Timothy must continue in the things which he has learned and been assured of, the things which are found and rooted in the word of God itself. And it's that context, then. Today we have another exhortation directly tied to Timothy as a minister. So once again, as has not been uncommon as it's related to the, uh, the epistles of First and Second Timothy, uh, the most direct application within the scope of this audience is actually to me, right? Um, I'm the one that is, is most... Uh, um, needing to apply the exhortations of First and Second Timothy. Uh, we do see, especially in First Timothy, the various elements of the church structure and how Timothy was supposed to teach that. And so it's not that, that I hope these, these, uh, these messages have been edifying to you as well, uh, but they are directed perhaps a little bit more so toward the minister, the pastors among us. And among us, that is, in fact, me. And yet all scripture is inspired, and as we learned last time, all scripture is profitable. Indeed, profitable not just for those unto whom there is a direct teaching, but also profitable to all those who will study and seek to obey the word of God. 
And so we step into the text today to do exactly that. We're going to study the Word of God with the intention of understanding and obeying its exhortations. Only going to do two verses today. I was hesitant to break up the immediate context of verses 1 through 5, but I felt necessary uh, I felt it necessary to do so. So we're only going to do verses 1 through 2 uh, this morning. And verse 1 says this, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. We're going to stop here for a moment, just in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, because it reflects the gravity with which Paul's exhortation is given. Paul tells Timothy that the charge is before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, invoking God's ever-presence to testify to this charge, reflecting to Timothy how important the call is which he is about to make. He says, as God is my witness, I am telling you this thing. And what we find when we see this, we, we recognize, if you've ever heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss. The idea behind the phrase ignorance is bliss is that the more you learn, the more you know, the, the more not only you're, you're troubled, right? The more one learns about history, um, uh, the more one learns about uh, the decisions of man, the more one is troubled by what they see around them, right? Because you see the, the rhyme or the rhythm or the repetition of, of historical errors and historical mistakes that we should have learned from a long time ago, but we haven't. And so there are elements of trouble that come with a lack of ignorance as one grows in understanding. But there's also a, a responsibility, isn't there? That once my children have been informed of an expectation, they are now responsible for that expectation. I can't rightly hold my children to the standard of an expectation of which I have not informed them. That would not be just. And yet once they are informed, they are accountable. And so when Paul reminds Timothy here, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's reminding Timothy of his accountability unto this end. And by proxy, reminding all ministers, all pastors, all preachers, all laymen to the responsibility that you have once you've been informed. And so we see here this call and notice that Paul witnesses here before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this particular context, we see God and the Lord Jesus Christ being represented as different persons. This is consistent not just in the English, but also in the Greek. And as always, when we see something like this, we take a moment to recognize that this is not intended to imply in any way that Jesus Christ is not God, but rather simply to invoke the first two members of the unified Trinity, what we call the Trinity. That word Trinity is not in our Bible, right? It's a theological term that we have established in order to describe a relationship between three persons that formulate one God. And this is something that our minds have a hard enough time wrapping around without some sort of label in order to, to, to help us uh, articulate it properly. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we find that these are three distinct persons, each one an individual person, but they function together as one God. And I've given an illustration before. The, the, the one that makes the most sense to me is as if two people coming together for a dance, not a modern type of dance, but the, an old, like a ballroom dance, where there are two individual persons, and those two persons have individual uh, um, capacities and individual appearances and such, but when they come together, 
and they come together to dance, they move and they operate as one. They move in complete harmony, one with another. And this is an element that is, is perhaps somewhat reflective of the Trinity. The idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are individual persons, and yet they operate completely together. They are together in will. They are together in mind. They are together in intent. They are together in purpose. And they each lend their various functions to what we call the Godhead. And thus they function as one God, though three persons. And it is not uncommon throughout the New Testament to see God and Jesus Christ separated one from another as a way to distinguish between the Father and the Son. And yet we also find in the Bible that Jesus testifies himself to be co-equal with the Father. And we find Jesus himself called by Paul in another prison epistle, God himself. So that Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of who? Well, of Jesus Christ. The Father will not appear by all accounts. It is Christ who will appear. You dig into the Greek and you find that this is speaking of the one who is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of any number of times. I, I go to this one because it's another prison epistle. It's most closely related to First and Second Timothy. I mean, another pastoral epistle, excuse me. Most closely related to First and Second Timothy where Paul acknowledges Jesus Christ here to be the great God. Any number of times where we see this. And so it should not throw us off when we see God referenced as such. As a matter of fact, we quite often do this, don't we? I will say when I'm sharing the gospel that God has made Jesus to be sin for us. Well, I'm not saying Jesus is not God. I'm simply re referencing the Father, the, the one who is in the heavens, who made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin. It is enough, then, to show that such a distinguishment does not threaten our theology as it relates to the Godhead, or what we often call in theology, the Trinity. And Paul charges Timothy before the Father and the Son, and reminds Timothy that this Son, this Lord Jesus Christ, shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And this is a very important phrase, the quick and the dead, to remind us that every man will stand before the Lord in judgment. That word quick simply meaning alive. So when, when we read the Word of God is quick and powerful, the idea of, of the Word of God being quick is alive. Thus, we have the concept of the living Word, right? The Word of God is quick and powerful. Here, God will judge the quick and the dead. The quick being alive, the dead being those who are spiritually dead, those who are damned at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And this is speaking not to a in a physical or temporal context, not those who are alive and who are dead in the flesh, but rather spiritual context, those who are alive and who are dead in the spirit. We have st spoken many times before about the biblical reality that believers will be judged for their works, just as unbelievers will be judged for their works. And either next week or the week after, I'm going to take a message and I'm going to focus on that because it's worth our time. It's worth our time to remember that. It's something that we often in our circles have forgotten. We, we, we have a very gospel-centric focus and perhaps to the point sometimes where we forget that we will also be judged for our works. We will not be judged for our works in relation to whether or not we will go to heaven or go to, go to the lake of fire. But we will be judged by our works. 
and we forget that. And so we forget the whole concept, which really fills so much of the New Testament Gospels, which is rewards. And we forget that there are rewards. And we forget that though we might be on our way to heaven, we can still earn and lose rewards. And it's something that we need to remember. So we're going to talk about that uh, coming up here either next week or the week after. But it's, it's sufficient for me today to remind you of two things. Things that I just mentioned in passing. Let me, let me biblically justify them before we move on. First, all men will be judged for their works. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will appear for those things that you have done in your body, as will every man. And second, remember that this judgment is distinct from God's determination of who will enter into eternal life and who will enter into eternal death. Our works will determine the nature of our rewards and of our loss. And again, we'll get more specific about this when I preach on it next week or the week after. But notice what the Bible says in, Revel in the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Not the book, but the books. Right? The books were opened, and another book was opened. And the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast on the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice this, though. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast on the lake of fire. So there is a judgment for works, and then there is a judgment for eternal life. Now, in this particular case, by this point, they will all be cast in the lake of fire. That's what that judgment is for. But Paul acknowledges that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what has been done in our bodies. And this distinguishment is made. It is the book of life that determines who will enter into eternal life and who will enter into eternal death. But prior to the, to the book of life, the book of works will be evaluated. I look forward to unraveling that when we do so. Back to our context. Paul charges Timothy before the Father and the Son, and he does so in light of the fact that Timothy, like Paul and all men, both those who are alive in Christ the quick and those who are dead in their sins, that would be the dead, in light of the fact that Timothy, like Paul and all men, are going to be judged... And then he gives this charge in his exhortation. Because, Timothy, you will be judged for the things that you do in this life. Because, yes, you are a believer. Yes, you are on your way to heaven. But there is still a reckoning for your works. Therefore, verse 2, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. We have here a series of direct commands given in the text, the first of which is preach the word. Now, naturally, this exhortation hits me like a ton of bricks. As a matter of fact, I can't read this verse without a tingle going up and down my spine. Just, it's just a part of the calling. 
the very fabric of my life, the essence of my existence is this. God has placed me on this earth. He has gifted me by his spirit to preach the word. But this is not everyone's gifting. It's important to understand that the call to proclaim the word of God, however, is not one that is only given to the pastor, right? In just the same way, we'll see in a few verses later, the call to evangelize the lost is not given only to those who have the gift of evangelism. Or that the call to give to the needs of others is only to those that have the spiritual gifting of giving, or that the call to have faith is not only a call to those who have the spiritual gift of faith. And so this call, preach the word, proclaim the word of God, cry out, publish the word of God. And then Paul speaks to what that means. First, he says, be instant, in season and out of season. The word instant here means at hand, ready, present, be present, be ready in season and out of season. This is the idea that Peter speaks about. We talked about it uh, last week at the picnic in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always ready to give an answer. Be instant, be ready, be at hand, both in season and out of season. Be ready to proclaim the word, its truths, and its implications. And that's the idea, that both in season and out of season, we proclaim the word of God. Now, this idea of being in season and out of season is one which is very simple in concept. This morning is an in-season time for me to preach the word. Right? We have a scheduled time. We come together. I've prepared slides, visual aids sometimes. Uh, I've put my notes together. I'm following those notes to at least a general degree. Uh, I have a plan. We have a system. You can, generally speaking, know at least what verse I'm going to be starting on in my text because uh, I go week after week, chapter and verse, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and I work my way through text. We sometimes do uh, topical series. I sometimes preach burden messages, but, but this is a general rule. This is an in-season time for me. Out-of-season times, when I'm mowing my lawn and a neighbor comes into my yard and begins asking about the Bible. When I'm at the store and somebody uh, is there and I, I begin to share the gospel. When somebody comes and knocks on my door in the middle of the week and says, Hey, Pastor, do you have a moment? I've got some questions for you. Those are out-of-season times. Those are times where I'm not prepared I, I don't have things ready in that sense, but there's an opportunity to minister. There's a need to proclaim truth. Be instant, Paul says. Preach the word. Be ready. Be at hand to preach the word in season, in those acceptable times, and out of season, in those times that, that, that you would not normally expect or that you weren't expecting to be doing so. Out of season moments. And the same line exists with laymen, though, of course, to a different degree. A layman might be asked to teach a class or to go out and do some dedicated evangelistic effort, and those are things that you can prepare for. If I say, hey, I'm going to be gone in a few weeks, could you uh, handle the, the prayer for me or could you handle the preaching for me? Uh, you have a time to prepare for an in-season opportunity to proclaim the Word of God. When you are having a dedicated Bible time with your children or whatever the case may be. There are in-season times that are dedicated to helping your children along as it relates to the Word of God. But unlike me, where a pro, uh, one might, might expect that a, a large portion of my proclaiming is in-season, the majority of the layman's proclamations are, 
probably out of season, <laughs> you know, in that sense, unprepared. Um, uh, notice the context then of this, pre of this preaching. You be ready in season, be out of season. Of course, this is more toward the pastor who has a significant more season to preach because this is my calling. And he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The word reprove there literally convict or convince. It's the same one that we find in John 16 when the, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will convict, convince or reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's the idea here. This speaks of spreading the gospel into salvation. This is not me condemning people or trying to work conviction in you, but me preaching the word unto conviction. In other words, as a pastor, one of my duties is to preach the parts of the word of God that are going to make you feel convicted. One of my aims is that I never preach in such a way as to make you, as to work in you a synthetic guilt. I try not to, to, to frame things in a manner that will, will kind of prick at your guilty emotions so that when you walk away, if you are feeling any conviction, you can be generally confident and, and perhaps selfishly, more importantly to me, I can feel generally confident that you're not walking away because Pastor Wickler made you feel something, but the Spirit of God is making you feel something. That, that you're walking away with conviction because the Spirit of God is saying something to you, not because Pastor Wickler was able to manipulate your emotions in some way. The idea is not that I take the place of God, but rather that I proclaim the truths of God's word that are consistent with sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and so facilitate the work of the Spirit of God in men's hearts. And many people will walk away from these things saying, oh, Pastor Wickler made me feel guilty. Pastor Wickler is a legalist, whatever the case may be. But, but my, my aim is never to make you feel guilty. If I've proclaimed the word of God and it doesn't apply to you because you've got that area settled in your life, praise God, walk away with a clean conscience and a, and a, and a happy heart. But if you don't walk away that way, by God's grace, it's because I've, I am doing my best not to avoid those things that are going to make you feel bad. Just because they might make you feel bad. And God forbid that me, among any preacher, should avoid things in the Word of God simply because they're going to step on the toes of the consciences of the people in the room. So we preach in season and out of season. We preach reproof. We preach rebukes. This would be directed more so, I, I guess I muddied the waters between these a little bit, but re, re, reprove would probably have more of the idea of that convicting work of the Holy Spirit unto salvation as we see it in John 16. Rebuke may be uh, directed a little bit more toward this admonishing, this forbidding, this charging toward believers, the call to the believer to avoid sin, charging them unto certain actions or responses or reactions, exhorting unto holiness, exhorting us to fear the Lord, keeping our hearts and minds of God's people from falling into complacency and error. And then exhortation. This is the other side of the coin. Have you ever been frustrated at me because I've told you what not to do, but I haven't told you how to fix it? Or have you ever been frustrated at me because I've said you shouldn't do this, but I haven't told you what you should do instead? And so you've said, okay, pastor, you just told me to walk in the spirit. This is one that's come up recently, but how do I do that? Like, you, you, I, I agree with you. I need to walk in the spirit. Now, Teach me how. <laughs> show, me, show me what that means. That's exhortation. I can't just tell you all of the things you're doing wrong. 
from the Word of God without telling you what the Bible says about how to do it right, how to get right, and how to be right. The elements of recognizing the faults are important, but they're only important to the extent that I can fix them. Something very frustrating about me telling you what the Word of God says about the problems if, the Word of God, if I don't tell you what the Word of God says about the solutions. So comforting, beseeching, calling men unto obedience, reminding you of joy, leading you unto faith and hope and love, instructing on the essential nature of living and thriving in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's my duty as well. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Comfort. Compel, beseech, encourage, lift up, strengthen. And then finally, notice the context within which this preaching is put forth into the ears of the hearers. With all long-suffering and doctrine, long-suffering, patient fortitude. This speaks to many aspects of how humans interact with the Word of God. First, to the reality that many will reject the scriptures and seek to silence the messenger. So as the pastor, as the preacher gets up and proclaims the word of God, he does so with long-suffering first because many will seek to silence the messenger. This is not something that is as common in the United States of America, although it's coming here quickly, right? But throughout much of the rest of the world, it's not only common, it is the default. And the call is that the minister remain faithful in the face of persecutions and rejections. Don't stop talking because people don't want to hear it. Second, long-suffering in the face of human frailty. So first, I don't stop talking just because people don't like what they're hearing. Second, it is perhaps understood almost implicitly that we humans are very stubborn, slow to learn, slow to adapt, slow to change, and that we're weak, we're frail, we're feeble. We have feet of clay, as it's called. I can read a passage of Scripture a dozen times before that message actually pierces my stubborn heart, brings me to some point of faith. Much the same way, I can get up here and say something a number of times without any noticeable results on the church. But the call is to remain faithful. The call is to remain on message. And this isn't an easy call. It's not uncommon for ministers to think back upon their years of ministry and wonder if they've truly had much of an impact at all. To wonder if their efforts have led to any noticeable change in the hearts and lives of the hearers. Pastors don't operate directly in the context of the tangible. We operate in the context of the intangible. We operate in the context of what is not seen as much as we operate in the context of what is seen. With most men, a man goes to his job and he builds something. He does something. He clocks in, he does some work, and at the end of that day, he clocks out and he can look back and he can see a noticeable record of what was accomplished in that day. The progress and the fulfillment of knowing that their time and their effort was a work unto an end and that that end was fulfilled. The minister does not always get that satisfaction. My efforts to put together sermons are only a means unto an end. I finished my day of study having constructed a coherent lesson, one which usually has blessed and convicted me at the time of study, but which is only as good as the effectiveness in the lives of the hearers. So the entire payoff for my labor of my study is my preaching on Sunday and the work that it does in your hearts. Only I don't ever get to see your heart. 
I can't. So I get to see fruit. And the thing with fruit is that fruit has to grow, right? Which means it's a long-term thing. Like the farmer who plants the seeds on one day has to wait a little while before he sees the, the manifest fruit of his efforts. So too the pastor has to wait a little while. My work, my effort, any effect it might have exists in the unseen recesses of your hearts and it comes out over time. And the same can be often said for the efforts of counseling and, and you know, jail and church and everything in between. Parents, you understand this, right? You sit down with your children and you instruct them and you encourage them and you walk away saying, I wonder if they heard anything I just said. And you continue living throughout your week and you still wonder if they heard anything that you said. But you're consistent and you love them and you instruct them and you walk away wondering if it's gotten through and if it's making any difference. And maybe at times you see glimmers but you still wonder. And then you get excess, extra glimmers sometimes. My wife and I will go somewhere, or whether it's a store or a restaurant with our children, and someone will come up and say, your children are very well behaved. And it'll be like that little glimmer of something might be working. Something might actually be working, right? And then, you know, at the end of the day, it's really, you know, when they become adults, when they start making choices for themselves, when they have their own decisions, families, responsibilities, that's when you see how much has really sunk into their hearts. That's when you see that fruit born in a more viable way. And so we see that this fruit takes time. And in this way, pastoring is very much like parenting, isn't it? With a notable difference that I don't often get 20 years. Pastors invest in the hearts and minds of many who come and go who are here for a few years and then move on to other things and I never see them again. And so the minister must be long-suffering, the Bible says. Patient, have fortitude, stick to the plan, preach the word, be faithful, trust that the power of God and the scriptures of God and the hearts of, of men to do the work. Now, pastoring has been one of the greatest blessings of my life, the privilege to spend my days studying scripture, pouring into the lives of others, and being able to stand and proclaim the word of God is a privilege that is beyond reckoning because it's my call. But being a minister while truly being a blessing, is also difficult. And it's not easy to labor without knowing whether or not you have an impact. It's not easy to walk around with the burden of shepherding eternal souls who must make their own choices and come to their own conclusions. See, because I can't live your life for you. I can't make your decisions for you, nor should I want to, nor do I want to. I have enough trouble with my own life and my own decisions. I have enough trouble on my own account. I have enough trouble with my own sin. But that doesn't lessen the burden. And churches have tried to mitigate these things by honoring their pastors and showing them love in any number of ways, and that's a wonderful thing. But you know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.2 comes to mind. Paul said, Ye are our epistles written on our hearts known and read of all men. The true reward of the minister is borne out in the fruit of the lives of those he serves. And to get the payoff, to see that fruit born, like with the farmer who plants the seed and then must water the seed and then must weed and then must uh, cultivate until the harvest, if the minister wants the payoff, He's got to be long-suffering. 
He's got to be faithful. It's that way in everything in our lives, right? If we want the payoff, we've got to be faithful because the process of growth is a long-term process. There are growth spurts and there are victories, but there's also periods of drought. And in these times of drought, the faithfulness of the preacher is just as important, probably more important than in those times of fruitfulness. So Paul exhorts Timothy here, be, be, uh, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Stick to the message, stick with the commission, be faithful in good times and bad, in prosperity or lack. The commission is not to be successful. The su success is God's business. The commission is to be faithful. So the first element within this context of preaching the word, long-suffering. The second is doctrine. And this is what the pastor is called to patiently preach. This is important. It is not my commission to tell you what I think. It is my commission to tell you what God thinks. It is not my commission to give you my opinion. It's my commission to tell you what God has said. Now, it's a part of my privilege to take the various elements of the Word of God and to organize them into a fashion that I believe will help you understand. But that's not where the power is, is it? The power is not in my charisma. The power is not in my capacity to, to uh, uh, make things clear. The, the power is not in my intelligence. The power is in the Word of God. The power of the preacher is not in himself. The power of the preacher is the power of truth. Because truth is self-validating. It's the power of doctrine, that word meaning instruction or teaching. Doctrine isn't the easiest way to get people to do things, is it? Manipulation, coercion, and guilt. I could, I, I could do a lot better at getting you to do things uh, through various humanistic means of compulsion. I could get you really stirred up. I could give you lots of inspiring words. And I could make you, uh, I, I could put you into a, a, a high emotional plane of excitement that might compel you unto an action. But the problem is, is that, that that's an external. That's an outside-in attempt to get you to do something rather than seeking to the heart of the matter and then letting the abundance of the heart be, where, be from which the mouth speaks, which is God's way. Manipulation and coercion and guilt, these are powerful tools to compel action. But only doctrine, only the truths of God's word can have a lasting impact upon the hearers that reflects the true success that God seeks. And if this charge is in light of the realization that the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Remember, that's the context. I spent a little bit of extra time. You say, Pastor, why did you spend so much time on verse 1? There's not a lot there. Because of that phrase, who will judge the quick and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom, that is the basis for this charge, which means this. When I am laboring, I am not laboring simply to see you do something. I am laboring because there's coming a day when I will stand before God and answer to him. And that, that's a heavy thought, isn't it? See, we don't live this life just to answer to our boss or to our parents. You don't live this life simply to answer to the government. What we understand about the world in which we live is that this world is only a temporal step. It is only a, a temporal moment in the, in the scheme of eternity. 
and that there's coming a day when all of this is going to go away and the things that remain will remain forever. So we live for those things. That's one of the deeper principles of the Christian life. So that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, Lay not up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this is the call that rests upon all ministers. To that end, most of the exhortative applications to the passage today rest upon my shoulders. I mentioned this at the beginning. I'm, I'm teaching the Word of God. This is how I do it. I start at chapter 1, verse 1, and I walk through the text. But this, the heavy weight of this passage is my weight to bear, not yours. And to whatever degree the opportunities come for you to proclaim the word, then it is yours as well. Know, Christian, that when you share the gospel, it is not your job to coerce men, to guilt men, to convince men into the kingdom of God. It's your job to faithfully and accurately tell them the truth. This is what we have been learning in Sunday school. Know, Christian, that when you find an opportunity to disciple or to answer a question, your job is not that you have to make God look good or make the church look good. Your job is to faithfully and accurately tell men what is true, what this book says. But perhaps the most important application to everyone here except me is the application rooted simply in recognizing ministers. That as you evaluate which ministers you choose to listen to, right? I've said this many times. I make no bones about the fact that in today's age, you're probably listening to someone else a lot more than you're listening to me. You've got podcasts that you're listening to. You turn the radio on. You turn television on. Whatever, whatever avenue you, you're watching YouTube, you are listening to a lot of other people other than me as it relates to the authority of the Bible. And I can't do anything about that, nor necessarily do I want to. That's not my job. But when it comes to this passage, it's important that you carry into the evaluation of who you are willing to submit to the exhortation of these two verses to pastors. Is the person in question, the pre person that you are listening to, preaching the word? One of the exhortations I give when I go to the jail and I minister to the people there, and they say, well, when I get out, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a church. I tell them this. I say, when you go into a church, if you don't hear the pastor say, please open your Bible at the beginning of their sermon time, you probably aren't in a church that is worth your time. If they're not going to open the Bible and tell you something that the Bible says, if they're just going to give you a self-help seminar, self-help seminars are not bad, but that's not what we're here for. We're here not to hear what a, a guru has to say. You're not here to hear what I have to say. You're not here because of my charisma. You're not here because of my capacities. You're here to hear what God has to say. That's, that's, that's what matters, what God has. doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to be wrong. I had to apologize to you a couple of weeks ago. I didn't apologize. I had to correct myself a couple of weeks ago uh, for something that I said that was incorrect. I'm gonna, I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. I get wrong. I say wrong things. I, 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 my study over time, I learn things. I have to change. I have to humble myself. I have to tell you I did something wrong. I've had to do this in counseling. I've made wrong decisions. I've forgotten things that I've promised or, or said that I would do. Uh, I've, I, I've, I will fail you. If you're trusting me, you're trusting sinking sand. 
but God will not fail. God does not fail. God, in fact, cannot fail. And so my value is only in the degree to which I point you to this book and its truths. So are they preaching the word of God? Are they reproving? Are they rebuking? Are they exhorting? Have you walked away encouraged and built up? Have you walked away convicted? Have you walked away uh, uh, seeking to, to evaluate the, the degree to which you are aligned with God? Is he doing so both with long-suffering and doctrine? Is what the minister is saying his word? Is it, is it his word or is it God's word, right? Is the minister resting on or appealing unto some carnal standard to establish his message or on some heavenly standard. You know, it's interesting. Paul was a pretty amazing guy. Uh, we look to Paul, and uh, of course, we have more of Paul's teaching in the New Testament than any other apostle, by far. The guy knew his stuff, right? He was an extremely intelligent man. He testifies that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law. He was a Pharisee, that he was greater than all of his brethren. We've learned that uh, from, from our evening service in Philippians, that he, he excelled all of, all of those that were his his equals in capacity as it related to being a Pharisee. The guy was good at what he did. He knew the law. He, he knew philosophy. When he stands up at Mars Hill in Athens, he was quoting secular philosophers as he was seeking to reason with them out of the gospel. The guy was an intelligent man. But he says something interesting to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this in verses 1 through 5. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, recounting the time that he first came to that church, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was not an unintelligent man. Paul was not a man who found himself unable to articulate biblical truth. And yet, when he went to the church of Corinth, before it was the church, when he went to the city of Corinth, when he came to them, he said, I was determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. To be among them in weakness rather than in strength. To preach with demonstrations of the spirit and power rather than in words of men's wisdom which perhaps explains why Paul spent so much time in 1 Corinthians having to correct their understanding of the use of sign gifts. Because he had an unusually heightened ministry of signs and wonders in Corinth as a means by which to combat the fact that Corinth was basically the capital of the, that former Greek province of Achaia. And because it was the capital of that area, they would have been excessively elevated in the concepts of wisdom, of rhetoric, of logic, of rationality, of philosophy. So Paul did not want to come to them in the vein of all of the other philosophers that were speaking all around him. To do so would have only put him on the plane of those philosophers. So instead he came without that wisdom, but he came with the power in order that he could show them the difference, right? Paul used those gifts to an unusual degree in the church as a means of validating authority. And then, of course, it fell out of balance because of that. Uh, in the church regularly, and so he had to rebuke them. But all of this because Paul knew his audience. The Greeks loved wisdom, and Paul was determined that the faith of the Corinthians would not stand in him 
in his wisdom, but rather in the power of God. And naturally, there is a place in preaching and teaching for careful and intelligent lines of inquiry. There's a place for academic rigor. You know that your pastor is one of those guys that loves that academic rigor, and it does come across in the way that I preach. But the true application of the text rests most upon my shoulders this morning. And then I seek to reflect that to you in this reality, that if there's one thing I hope you take away from these verses, take away from this message, it would be that you better understand the ministers that are among you. Understand the minister's commission and his responsibility. And then understand whenever you do step into those shoes of, of those opportunities in your own context to proclaim the word of God. Most of you, perhaps with the exception of a couple of our young men, will, will, will likely never feel the call to full-time ministry. But when you do speak to the word of God, make sure that it's the word of God unto which you speak. And young men, if you do feel an inkling of that call unto ministry, understand the commission unto which you are being pulled. Understand that it is not a charge for you to become a popular, liked, well-known, well-loved, articulate, intelligent, charismatic person that people are going to be drawn to like flies to a flame you're going to be a preacher of the word of God. And that any draw should be the draw that a person has to the word of God, not to you. And we do so that in all things, two things may be, may, may be established in, 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 in clarity and without fail. First, that in all things God receives the glory and not this minister not you, but God. And second, that in the day that this minister stands before the judge of all things, who will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, that I will be found having been faithful in long-suffering and in doctrine to my commission. Because that's, that's the call. That's the value. Outside of that, it's, there's no value. And may God help each of us that when we stand before the Lord, when he judges the quick and the dead, that we'd have confidence in the same. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.